Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Along with bringing you updates and critical information happening all around the world, we're always fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers. These good folks practice on the ground in jurisdictions all around the globe, working daily to help their clients move through difficult times. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical information from ELA members in each region. Today, we're chatting with several of our colleagues in Bermuda. Joining us on the call is Jules Harvey and Gambrel Robinson, attorneys at Canterbury Law Limited in Bermuda. Today, our guests are gonna discuss the enforceability of restrictive covenants in contracts of employment. Jules Gambrel, welcome to the program. How are you ladies today? Great, thank you. Doing well, Pete, thank you. Let's talk about restrictive covenants kind of at the core. This is a topic that if you're a labor and employment lawyer, it's on your top 10 list, maybe your top five list of what we focus on. But yet some of our listeners don't really understand the nuances of what a restrictive covenant is. So Jules, why don't you start the show up for us if you can. Tell us what are restrictive covenants and why do employers use them? No problem. A restrictive covenant is typically a clause in a contract which prohibits you as an employee from competing with your former employer for a certain period of time after you leave your job. It can also prevent you from soliciting or dealing with clients of your former employer or from poaching the staff from your old job. The aim of a restrictive covenant is the protection of an employer's legitimate business interests, which include stability of the employer's workforce and client base, confidential information such as employment data or client data, trade secrets, and or intellectual property rights like designs and patents. So Jules, thanks for the definition. It helps a lot of our audience, I think, to understand not only what they are, but how they use them. But I know there are different types of restrictive covenants that can be used by employers. And in many cases, some are more enforceable than others. Can you lay out for us the different types of restrictive covenants and how they're used? And also more importantly, how we can enforce them? Sure. First, we have non-compete clauses. The next one we'll have is non-solicitation clauses. The next one after that are non-dealing clauses. We have then non-poaching clauses. And finally, confidential information clauses. Going back to the second part of your question, non-competes, what they do is place a restriction on former employers from working in similar employment for the employer's competitor. Non-complete clauses are usually restricted to certain geographical areas. When it comes to enforceability, it's quite difficult because it promotes a restraint of trade, preventing a former employee from gaining alternative employment in the same field of work. It's possibly enforceable if the employer can prove that they have a legitimate business interest to protect. The employer's justification will increase with the former employer's level of seniority because the senior employees have more access to knowledge and the company's confidential information and thus can do more damage to the company if they steal and apply those secrets. The next one will be non-solicitation clauses. What these do is prevent former employers from poaching clients, customers, suppliers of their former employers. When it comes to enforceability, they're more likely to be more enforceable than a pure non-compete clause because you're protecting the client base of a company, which is a legitimate business interest to protect. We have a case example where it was a 1964 case in England it's where a defendant was an agricultural salesman. It was a former employer, and the company was listed as a cake and corn merchant. There was a two-year non-solicitation clause, which was upheld upon an injunction. This clause stopped him from soliciting any farmer or market gardener who had been the customers at the time of his employment. 
the UK Court of Appeal upheld that the clause was reasonable because there was no water then reasonably necessary for the protection of the business's legitimate proprietary interests in maintaining their connection with their customers and included solicitation in any area that the employee carried out business, even if he didn't have knowledge of the customers of the employers. It was an important case because two years is a long time, yet the non-solicitation clause was upheld. Next, we have non-dealing clauses. What it does is prevents a former employee from dealing with the former clients, customers, and suppliers, regardless of which party approached the other. So it can be the employee, former employee, approaching clients, suppliers, or otherwise, them going the other way around. It's wider than a non-solicit because it says you cannot deal with your former company clients, even if they come to you without you soliciting them in simple terms. The enforceability, it's less enforceable than a non-solicit because it's wider, but they're still common and upheld. Next we have is non-poaching clauses. What it does is prevent an employee from poaching, literally picking up former colleagues from his former workplace. As you know, employees have relationships and they have a rapport over many years of working together. It's more enforceable because retaining staff is a legitimate business interest that courts will aim to protect. Finally, what we have is confidential information clauses. What it does is prevent former employees from using certain classes of information deemed to be confidential. When it comes to enforceability, whilst an implied duty of confidentiality exists in every contract of employment, even without a written contract, it is clearly better to have a tailored comprehensive clause in the contract, particularly where there are specific know-how that needs protecting. Great. Well, that was quite comprehensive. And I'll tell you what, it's amazing how legal precedent is still being used today. 1964 was a long time ago. Anyway, so thanks for that. That was really helpful. But let's go into some of the documents that we need. And Gambrel, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. What types of documents do you find restrictive covenants in? Thanks, Pete. Well, because of Bermuda being such an international business hub for reinsurance and insurance, we have a lot of senior executives as clients. And so what we do find is that their employers place restrictive covenants in every document they can find, pretty much. We see them in employment contracts, separation agreements, partnership agreements, shareholder agreements. We see them in LTIPs or long-term incentive plans, equity awards. And we've even seen them in sale purchase agreements where the employee is a principal. Employers will place them in any document where the employer is offering the employee new consideration, such as like increased pay, shares, options, or any other incentive. So to our employee clients, we tell them that it's important that they read all of these documents carefully before signing them because the restrictive covenants found in these shareholder incentive plan and equity agreements are often onerous. And they're usually found in tiny little print in the middle of these documents, which can be hundreds of pages long. The employees need to be aware of them because the restrictive covenants are often more onerous than those that are found in their employment agreements. Yet, what we have found is that sometimes the employee has no idea that they're even there because they haven't read them. And that becomes a problem when things get heated when they're leaving the company. There's a case in 2018, it was called Ideal Standard in Herbert, and the former employee was a senior executive. He left the company, had no restrictive covenants in his employment agreement or in the separation agreement, but he had signed this shareholder agreement with the group company during his employment, and it actually contained 18-month restrictive covenants that were enforceable against him, and he had no idea about them until after he left the company. This is why employees should always read the fine print. 
So an employer can introduce new restrictive covenants into the terms of an employee's employment at any time during the relationship, as long as the employee is offered some form of new and valuable consideration that's linked to entering into the covenants. This can be shares, which is usually in the form of restricted stock units in the case of an incentive plan or a pay raise or a promotion in the case of a revised contract of employment but it must be linked to or in consideration for agreeing to enter into the more onerous terms of the employment. The employee must be compensated for agreeing to give up his rights and freedom to compete on termination of his employment. If the consideration isn't linked to the restrictive covenants, then they won't be enforceable. It's also important to note that the different types of documents will be interpreted differently by the courts in terms of the onerousness of the covenants. For example, restrictive covenants in a partnership agreement can be more restrictive and are more enforceable than those found in an ordinary contract. This is because a partner has more bargaining power than an ordinary employee, as he or she is the owner of the business, and there's a mutuality of power. The other partners are equally affected by the same terms. There are only a couple of decided cases involving restrictive covenants and partnership agreements. The leading case is Bridge and Deacons. It's a Privy Council case, which is part of the House of Lords and would also Bermuda's ultimate appeal court. In this case, they upheld restrictive covenants that prevented a departing partner from a Hong Kong law firm for competing with his former firm for as long as five years after he left the firm. Compared to an employment case that we would normally see where it's an employer-employee situation, a two-year restrictive covenant would rarely even be enforceable. However, because of the fact that it was a partnership agreement, the Privy Council held that the nature of the business, where the partners each own a share of the assets, including the goodwill of the business, because of this, they had together self-determined the appropriate needs of the business in order to protect the goodwill. As partners, they equally relied on and were burdened by these covenants. And it was not a case of an employer unilaterally imposing unreasonable and onerous restrictions on a departing employee who has less bargaining power. More recently, in a case PwC and Carmichael, this is in 2019, which is pre-COVID, an injunction was granted to PwC prohibiting an ex-partner from working for a competitor. Carmichael had been on Gardenly for nine months, but he was prohibited from competing for another six, and that took him out of the market for a total of 15 months. This was held to be reasonable given the highly sensitive and commercial knowledge he possessed that would be invaluable to a competitor. However, it's unlikely that restriction as long would be enforceable as against a junior employee. So, Gambrel, that's really interesting about what can be enforceable and what can't. But let's talk about some of the actions employees can take if an employee is breaching a restrictive covenant. Fill us in on that, if you would. Yeah. So if an employer suspects or discovers that their employee is going to breach his contract and he's going to unlawfully compete, move to a competitor, steal all the staff, he does have some options. In the U.S., you don't actually have garden leave, but uh, the first thing in Bermuda that the employer can do and should do is place the employee on garden leave. It's the biggest tool in an employer's shed in terms of preventing the employee from competing against him. For those who are unfamiliar with it, it's basically, it's a clause in the employee's contract that says the employer can send the employee home, not provide him with any work, but the employer still pays all the salary and benefits throughout the notice period. So basically, they remove the employee from the market but they still pay him and the employee is still bound by the duties of confidentiality and fidelity, and they can't compete against the employer at this point in time. And then the employer really needs to immediately begin investigating the employee to determine whether he or she has breached the contract by removing any confidential information. The best way to do this is to do an IT audit, troll through their emails, 
see if they've been emailing inappropriate documents to their home to other people. Have they been printing confidential information? Have they been talking to people? It's really important to find out what the employee has been doing. So, Gambrel, I, I love this notion of the garden leave and the tools in the shed. So you made a funny there. That was kind of clever, the way you said, you know, take garden leave and then get your tool out of the shed. So basically, the employee is only left to do some gardening, I guess. That's all he can pretty much do at home because he can't work and he's getting paid. So he might as well build a garden. I love that idea. Exactly. We always say to our employees, we wish that someone would put us on garden leave. Sounds yeah, nice. And for those that haven't visited Bermuda, there's lots of beautiful gardens there. So there must be lots of people on leave. You never know. Hey, Jules, let's bring you back in the conversation if we can and talk about something called springboard injunctions. What are those? Well, first and foremost, an injunction in general is basically something that stops you from doing an action, plain and simple. So when we talk about springboard injunctions in the employment realm, it's designed to stop a group of employees or even one employee from leaving the company to set up a competitive company by misusing the company that they're currently in's information, which is usually confidential. So what they'll do here is they'll misuse the confidential information in order to get a head start or springboard themselves into their new business. The aim here is to stop employees dead in their tracks from their use of unlawful information in order to set up a new business. So the applicable factors here is that the behavior has to be unlawful, period. And it has to relate to a breach of confidence or confidential duties or fiduciary duties. The most important here is that the employer must seek and obtain the springboard relief early as basically when the unlawful activity is still being enjoyed by the former employers. Sounds like timing is of the essence there. So well, listen, we covered a lot of stuff around restrictive covenants, both globally and a few nuances there in Bermuda, but let's wrap up the show with some important takeaways for employers if they want to rely on restrictive covenants. Who wants to weigh in on that? I will go first. It is definitely important to have an excellent written contract of employment in place and definitely do it at the commencement of an employment since it's much easier to impose restrictive covenants on a new employee rather than an existing one. Including the contract of properly drafted restrictive covenants by an attorney with experience in this area. It's a really complicated area and you cannot rely on Google for this. Yeah, Google answers a lot of questions, but I wouldn't put my restrictive covenants to test there. And for those that know the ELA, we have special interest groups here in the Employment Law Alliance. Restrictive covenants is a hot topic around the globe. And I want to say thanks to our friends in Bermuda for sharing their perspective today. It's been an interesting discussion. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Pete. If you'd like to connect with Jules or Gambrel, you can find their bios by clicking on their names in the description of this podcast. Please visit ela.law to receive invitations to upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from the online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.